according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, in Hebrews 8 this morning. Hebrews 8, which is actually a fairly short chapter, only 13 verses. We can make our way through here quicker than uh, the 100 years it took us to get through chapter 7. I know I exaggerate, but uh, I'm not the only one. This uh, study, I tell you, um, I'm loving it. The book of Hebrews uh, has been my favorite book since seminary days, my favorite book for a long, long time, and I have never, until now, been blessed by the Lord to teach Hebrews, and I feel still like we're doing way too fast. We're going uh, more, uh, you know, 10 or so classes per chapter, uh, and maybe next time we go through we'll be able to slow down and really dig into the exegesis and into the, the meat, but nevertheless, um, the main point in what has been said is this, we have such a high priest, and the more we focus on him, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, we have such a high priest, and we too Join him in that priesthood. We ourselves are such priests. And the power of an indestructible life that is by which he qualifies to do his ministry, by which we qualify to do our ministry, it's not an earthly requirement. It's the power of God in our salvation status as church-age believer priests. So it's a powerful book, and I'm, uh, I'm eager to, to learn more as, uh, as we have it here today, all right? Well, God is spirit, he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's bow before him and call upon his faithfulness to open the, mind, the eyes of our understanding. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you once again, unworthy in ourselves, Father. Who are we that we should be in your presence, that, we should, that you should reveal yourself to us? But Father, in Your Son, You freely give us all things, including Your plan, Your Word, Your truth. We thank You for the privilege that it is to stand in Your presence, to be led in the paths of righteousness for Your name's sake. We call upon the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit this hour. Father, some of the, the meat here in Hebrews gets deep, and uh, the author even warns his recipients that when you're dealing with Melchizedek, you're dealing with, with deep doctrine. So we call upon You, Father, to to bless our study, to set aside distractions, to humble us under your truth. We thank you, Father, and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we have the blessings of his ministry. And we're still in the early verses here, verses 1 through 6. And uh, I want to make sure we're solid because really the bulk of the chapter is a quotation from Jeremiah 31. And so we're going to take the time to make sure we're solid on Jeremiah 31, that we don't confuse who the covenant is made with. This is a covenant with Israel. This is a covenant where Yahweh has promised that He will, in the future, enter into a covenant with Israel, not with the church. And uh, you can't, God cannot be a faithful God if He makes a vow to one person and then switches and decides, you know what, He's going to fulfill that with somebody else. That'd be like a groom at the altar. We were at a wedding last night, and can you imagine a groom at the altar who makes a vow to his wife and then decides after a while he's going to switch the recipients of that oath and he's going to say, you know what, uh, I know I made that vow, but I'm going to apply it now to the church instead of to Israel. I mean, seriously, what bride would put up with that? And whether it's not a vow, you're not faithful if you're changing the object of your vow. And uh, so we're going to be solid on the fact that the new covenant was promised to Israel, and guess what? It belongs to Israel. It will be theirs for all eternity. The church is not a party to the new covenant, and we're going to be clear on that as we get there. But for tonight, for this morning, though, as we look at the minister that we have, again, verse 1 of chapter 8, the main point in what has been said is this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And this is a summation of the first seven chapters, and really it recaps how chapter 7 concluded and how it was fitting for us. Glance back to 726, and you see it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. And so we keep emphasizing this, such, such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above 
the heavens. That is a high priest unlike any Israel ever had. All right, those high priests, they, uh, they were sinners. Those high priests uh, required a sacrifice first for themselves and then for the people. Those high priests, they would enter within the veil one day a year. And then what? Then they would come back from within the veil and wait another year before doing it all over again. All right, Jesus, on the other hand, did not enter through a veil in the earthly replica. He actually entered into heaven itself. And he passed through the heavens. That's the difference. Aaron and those high priests passed through a veil. Jesus passed through the heavens. And he's seated at the Father's right hand. No uh, Old Testament high priest was so seated. And so this is our ministry. Seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister in the sanctuary. So don't think that he's just kicked back doing nothing. Don't think that he's, uh, you know, after church on a Sunday and he's in the recliner and the feet are propped up and the football game's on, but he's asleep and not really watching it. That's not Jesus as the head of the church. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, but he is actively ministering. He is a liturgicos minister in the sanctuary, in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Remember the earthly tabernacle and Solomon's temple, they were replicas. They were facsimiles. They were based upon the pattern of the heavenly reality, and that's where Jesus entered. So he is a liturgical minister in the true tabernacle. And I'm not going to repeat what we did last week, but it's helpful, and I appreciate that. Some of you actually had some things to offer up, because in your background you have a liturgical past, all right? I don't have a liturgical past in my background. I grew up in a non-liturgical church, very similar to this church, actually. And, uh, and so if you're not in, used to a liturgical church, then all of the trappings of, of say, a Roman Catholic church, a Lutheran church, a Episcopalian, Presbyterian, a lot of these, you know what I'm talking about because they've got the robes, they've got uh, the color coding, they've got the, uh, all of the liturgy that they follow in terms of the Advent calendar. Today's the first Sunday of Advent, by the way. Did you know that? Does it matter? Do you care? We are not a liturgical church as it comes down to that. And since we're not liturgical, we're handicapped. We, uh, we suffer a little bit when we come across vocabulary like liturgos. And now we can actually do the homework and understand that liturgos service is not doula service and it's not deacon service. It is liturgos service and it's specifically priestly, but it's specifically corporate public priestly service, if that helps. And so we addressed that last week and we dealt with that. He, uh, although he's seated, he still ministers, and we minister with him. That is so important for us. And so we talked about two families, the Liturgos family and the Latreya family. Uh, so it's sad that usually our only exposure to the Latreya family is when we put Ido in front of it, and we have idolatry. And uh, if we can just take the Ido out of idolatry, we would have legitimate Latry. And, and the Latry that we should have is the worship that we have before the Father. Anyway, we were going to highlight those uh, L families as opposed to the D families, the Dulos family and the Diakonos family. That's a different kind of service altogether. The priestly service is priestly. It's not bond slave service and it's not deacon service. And we want to hopefully recognize that. And, and they can be in tandem, they can be side by side. So when you're a deacon and you're doing your deacon service and you're you know, doing what deacons do, just recognize you want to simultaneously with that be prayerful about it and be um, priestly minded about it. So you're not just opening the mail and paying the bills. You're, you're, you have a priesthood mindedness about it. You offer it up as a sweet smelling savor. You open up your, your uh, deacon time with a prayer time that sanctifies it as a priesthood, as a sweet smelling savor. And we'll talk about more of that as we get into our sacrifices that we offer. All right, verse 3, every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. That's what they do. They don't just have a title and then stand there in an impressive outfit and not do anything. They do have an impressive outfit, but they actually have to serve. They have to do. They have to offer gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now he finished the sin offering once and for all. He finished the atonement offering once and for all. And that's, that's never going to be repeated ever again. That's once and for all, and we're eternally saved because of that. But he still has ongoing gifts and sacrifices that he's daily offering. So do we. 
We have the living sacrifice that we offer day by day, presenting ourselves as the living and holy sacrifice. We're going to be talking about that also. So he is presently ministering, and so are we. Jesus Jesus presently ministers in the heavenly holy of holies, Hebrews 8, verses 2 and 3. And he does so as the apostle and high priest of our confession, Hebrews 3, 1. We dealt with that back in chapter 3. You might recall those aren't empty titles as the apostle and high priest of our confession. What does that tell you? We get included. I keep stressing this because I've encountered that. I don't know if you have too, but there's a movement out there that wants to remove the priesthood from the church age. Wants to remove the priesthood from the church. That denies that Christians today in the New Testament are called priests. And the way they can deny it is if they can ignore Hebrews and they can ignore First and Second Peter. And they can ignore James. And they say, well, those are Jewish books. Those are designed for the Jewish Christians and they're not designed for us Gentile Christians. We are not priests because I'm going to ignore all the verses you give me. <laughs> Stop, all right? I'm going to give you more verses and I'm going to keep giving you verses until you can't ignore them anymore. And stop ignoring these verses and telling me they're not in my Bible or they're not applicable to me in the church age. All right? Because at that point, I think you're introducing a destructive heresy and we're not going to put up with that. He does so as the apostle and high priest of our confession. Can we agree that our is our? That is first person plural, that we is us, and this is our confession. It's not just his confession. And a high priest, doesn't that infer there's other priests besides him? If he entered as a forerunner, doesn't that indicate that there's others that enter behind him? What kind of a forerunner is the only runner, right? He's not an only runner, he's a forerunner. And we follow him within the veil. Chapter 10 makes clear, we enter within the veil. Our priestly ministry is within the veil. And uh, it's just so powerful. It is through the Holy Spirit and through Jesus Christ that our priestly function ministers to God the Father. Say, how can I function within the veil when I'm seated here on earth? Well, the Holy Spirit empowers it, and it's in the name and authority of Jesus Christ that we are uh, authorized to be there. And so, uh, as we ran out of time last Sunday, we were dealing with these very verses here, that it's through Jesus that we can minister we don't need uh, an a, a intermediary. It's not like uh, in, in the Catholic Church where I can't just talk to God, I need a saint or I need the Virgin Mother or I need somebody to, to intercede for me or I've got to go sit in a booth with, uh, you know, the, with the priest and confess my sins to him. No, no booths. I go to the Father with First John 1, 9, I talk directly to my Father. And that's what our priesthood is all about. And so uh, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 2, It's through Jesus that we offer these sacrifices. Hebrews 13, it's through Jesus that we offer these sacrifices. Even in John 4, as God, uh, that we worship in spirit and in truth. I think that's a picture of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. So if we worship the Father in spirit and in truth, it's God the Son and God the Holy Spirit that empowers us, enables us to, to directly approach the Father. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's an operation that's bigger than just getting saved. We come to the Father in salvation, of course, but we also come to the Father in prayer. We come to the Father in our priesthood. See, the pinnacle of our priesthood is not the mercy seat. That was the pinnacle of Israel's priesthood. Our priesthood, Jesus is our mercy seat. The pinnacle of our priesthood is God the Father. It's a patriological priesthood because it's through the Son that we go to the Father. And I hope that uh, hope we're clear on this. I would, I would uh, hate to try to pastor any Bible church that had Ralph Braun and his legacy and not stress God the Father as the pinnacle of our, of our uh, priestly ministry. So Jesus presently ministers and so do we. Understand, dispensation of the church worship is heavenly priestly service. That's what we do. Heavenly priestly service. And this is true of not just pastors, not just those who are so uh, quote-unquote in the ministry. We're all in the ministry. We're all liturgical priests in the church age. Acts 13.2. What were they doing in, in uh, Antioch where they were first called Christians? It was the critics that called them Christians. And uh, the Christians liked it. So they said, okay, we'll take that. <laughs> you know, they assigned that, you're just little, little Christs. And they said, yes, we are. Thank you. And then, so the, the name Christian was birthed here in Antioch. And it says, uh, Acts 13, 1 says, there were at the Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, 
Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Wow, there's a story. I want to hear his story someday. And, uh, and Saul. So you talk about a dream team. Here's a hall of fame of uh, Barnabas and Paul and these other guys. And uh, what a wealth of teachers that's available here at Antioch. And while they were, here's our uh, lit, uh, liturgeo vocabulary, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. Notice, they were ministering to the Lord. And we, we hear also ministering to the Lord. You think, well, I'm ministering to you because I'm teaching right now. Or when we're in the fellowship hall, we're ministering to each other with our mutual fellowship and encouragement. Or when we're in the prayer meetings, we're ministering to one another in, in encouragement. But it's actually ministering to the Lord. Our service is as unto the Lord, and it is to the Lord that we minister. Again, liturgeo is the vocabulary on that. Ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And we talk about this in different contexts, talk about this with, uh, with uh, student pastors that are looking to be uh, ordained and launching forth, wondering when uh, will that door open? When is the timing for that? Well, uh, the Lord's the one who opens doors no man can shut, and He shuts doors no man can open, and He's the one in charge. So if, uh, as Colonel Thiem said, if, you're not, if He doesn't promote you, you're not promoted. And in the meantime, what do you do? You stay busy. You stay busy. Look how busy these guys are. They're ministering to the Lord. They're fasting. They're praying. God looks out there and He finds busy, active, engaged servants. And He says, all right, I'm putting you on a new field now. And he takes them. He doesn't look around and say, who's the biggest slug around here that's not doing anything? And say, oh, hey, there's you. You're not doing anything. Let me put you to work. Why would God use a slug like you? That's the point. We stay faithful. We stay serving. We stay about our Father's business. And when he chooses to put us into a new field, we praise God that he counted us faithful in the field we had previously been in. And we, uh, we continue to strive for faithfulness there. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I, qu- I quote this verse so many times, you're probably sick of hearing it. I think I can work Romans 12 into Philippians or Hebrews or Proverbs. I, can, I don't care what I'm preaching. I can put in a wedding service. We can find something. I can get to Romans 12, 1 and 2, a lot of different ways. But it's important. It's a beautiful verse. And I think it clears up some misconceptions with respect to what we do in our worship as the body of Christ. He says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Now you can stop right there and understand this is a priestly context. Offering your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. It's the language of sacrifice. It's the language of priesthood. And that's what we're supposed to do. And it's not a dying priesthood. We're not butchering a goat or killing an animal of some sort. All the dead sacrifices are over because Christ fulfilled them. He is the last one to die. He died and now he ever liveth to make intercession for the saints. We in our priesthood, we don't kill things. We present ourselves as living sacrifices, our very selves, our being. So present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God. Remember that sweet-smelling savor has to be well-pleasing in his sight? Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Our language, we, and we do it, we're guilty of this. We, we, uh, we have certain things, we call them a worship service. And that's really mislabeled. Our spiritual service of worship is not here, it's out there. We come here to get equipped. We go out there to live our lives as a living sacrifice. When you're living your walk as a born-again believer priest, as a living sacrifice, that's worship. When you're in, in your home, in your marriage, in your workplace, in your family, wherever you go, and you're making decisions based on the Word of God, and you're conducting your life as per divine viewpoint and, and the will of God, that's worship. That's worship. It's not the songs you sing or whether your, your hands are raised in the air or whether you feel particularly holy at the moment. It's not an emotion. It is your volitional, in fact, it's rational your rational service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You've got to be living in the Word of God, saturated with the Word of God. 
Because that's what will renew your mind. Otherwise, the world will just rub off and you get conformed quicker than anything. But if you're renewing, if your mind is being renewed by the living and abiding Word of God, then you will demonstrate the good and the perfect and the acceptable will of God. It's a powerful way to live. I can appreciate that. More priestly language. More priestly language in Romans 15. This one's very explicit. Romans 15, 16. I guess I'll back up to 15. I have written very boldly to you on some point so as to remind you again. Isn't that great? Repetition's marvelous. Paul loved it. I love it. I don't mind repeating myself. Uh, I can remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. That's priestly ministry. And in case you missed it, he repeats himself ministering as a priest, the gospel of God. So think about that. Next time you're giving the gospel to somebody, next time you're talking to an unbeliever and he wants to know, you know, what must I do to be saved? And you're going to talk to him. What you're doing then, not only are you giving him the gospel, at that very moment, you are ministering the gospel as a priest. That is your priestly service ministering as a priest the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. And so you get the guy saved and what does that become? It's a burnt offering that goes up before the Lord. You're ministering and they become your offering. Of course, it's a living sacrifice. You don't have to kill the person you just saved, right? It's a, we understand this. All right. You know, they served in the shadows which had all the ritual and all the death and all that. We serve in the reality and that reality is often, is always spiritual and invisible and, and hard to see on this earth sometimes, but there it is. Ministering as a priest, the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That's verse 16. In the same chapter, down to verse 27, talking about the funds that we're collecting. Philippi got it started, and Thessalonica joined in, and even Corinth, can you believe it? Even Corinth got on board with this. But he says, I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. We're talking about charity funds. We're talking about benevolence. We're talking about, you know, denarius coins and cash on hand, Roman coins and and currency, money that's being sent. And Paul takes it and he puts it into priestly language. So when you're back there at the grace box between you and the Lord and your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing, just consider that it's a priestly function as your giving is unto the Lord. For they were pleased to do so, in verse 27, they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they're indebted to minister. That's priestly liturgos ministry to them in material things priestly ministry in material things. So it's described on that basis. We've dealt with this recently in Philippians. Philippians 2, verse 17, verse 25, verse 30. Our current Philippians series, if you're not accustomed to being here at the 9.30 hour on Wednesday nights, uh, that's our Philippians series, presently in chapter 4, but not long ago in chapter 2, we looked at this. As Paul was thankful <coughs> for the money that Philippi had sent. And even more than the money, the prayers, the other involvement that they had. Philippians 2.17, Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. Notice that? The Philippians had a sacrifice. The Philippians had service of faith. And he uses priestly language to describe it. Go back to Leviticus sometime. I know it's Leviticus. But read Leviticus, read the procedures. As they were killing the animals and offering, there were very frequently there were libations poured out. There were glasses of wine that went with the sacrifices. And so Paul uses that language as a drink offering poured out. He's talking about he might die in this jail. He might be executed by Rome. If so, he just considers himself the drink offering that got poured out upon the sacrifice and service of the Philippians' faith. So there's priestly language there in verse 17. There's priestly language in verse 25 
where he says, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your, and the word for messenger is apostle, and minister, the word for minister is leturgos, priestly minister to my need. Philippi had assigned Epaphroditus to travel to Paul's place of imprisonment, traditionally Rome, but I believe Ephesus, traveled to Ephesus or wherever Paul was imprisoned at the writing of this letter, and to serve Paul as the apostle of Philippi and the priestly server to the apostle Paul. Finally then, verse 30. He says uh, that Epaphroditus came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your liturgos, priestly service to me. I don't think we're going to look at liturgos the same way ever again. We're definitely not going to get it confused with doulos or diakonos as it relates to these different applications. So our worship is a heavenly priestly service. Our sacrifices are heavenly priestly sacrifices. Yes, there's earthly effects, <laughs> but the focus is heavenly, not earthly when it comes down to it. All right. Then verses 4 and 5. I told you we're going quickly. Isn't this crazy? Breakneck speed. Why are we going through so many verses so quickly? All right, verses 4 and 5. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. So it's a good thing he's in heaven, okay? We have such a high priest. We have a high priest that, like this world's never seen. Only even Melchizedek was just a, a foreshadowing. The world has not seen a priest like Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of God the Father until Jesus Christ was seated at the right hand of God the Father. We have such a high priest. And if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. Now this is written in the present tense. This is among the several verses in the book of Hebrews that indicates that it's pre-70 AD, that the offerings are still taking place, the priests are still daily standing. In fact, not only pre-70 AD, I think it's pre-67 AD, uh, they were under siege for a length of time, and at a point in that siege, they had to stop the sacrifice. They just couldn't offer sacrifice anymore. They were out of food. They were out of sheep. They were out of. They were starving under the Roman siege. And so we date the Book of Hebrews in the early 60s. I put it in the about 63 time frame. In any event, um, they are presently serving. They are presently serving, and if Jesus was on earth, they wouldn't take him. They wouldn't take him, and he wouldn't qualify anyway because he's not a Levite, as we've discussed previously. So if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve, presently serve, a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says... This goes back to Exodus. Uh, See, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. And I don't know all the details on this. I wonder sometimes, you know, how genius was Moses? If you can look at blueprints once on a mountain and then come down and years later or in the coming months, you you remember what you were looking at. And, uh, and, you know, God must have given him memory recall to, to do this. But he built the tabernacle according to this pattern that was shown him on the mountain. All right. So if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Now this is an if, and it's a counterfactual if, and I love these. Uh, sometimes when I go into this, I bore you to tears, so let's try not to do that. The, uh, this is an if, and it's not true. If, and it's not true. A second class condition. It's not true. But if it was true, then something else would happen. Okay? So if this, then that, but since this isn't, then that's not. And, and it's just it's normal language. It's used all the time, and we use it constantly. But um, for some reason, when it comes across in the Scriptures, uh, there are folks that struggle, and there are folks that don't want the Scripture to say what it says in different ways. I don't think this is one of those texts, but there's other texts that, uh, that really cause consternation on the part of, of uh, different folks that they, they view it as an insult. They view it as a shortcoming on God's part. And, uh, and I think they just need better appreciation for how God operates. But let's look at this one here. I think the, um, 
The bodily absence is a good thing. The bodily absence is actually it's a marvelous thing. Jesus' present bodily absence from this world is to our advantage. It is to our advantage. Thank God that He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And this is a doctrine that we spent a lot of time with in our Life of Christ series. Because I think the, uh, it's incomplete otherwise if you just appreciate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because there's something after the resurrection. It's the ascension. And there's something after the ascension. It's the session. And so we proclaim the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and session of Jesus Christ. All five elements there. And it's those elements that you and I are baptized into. We're baptized into His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, and His session. Because where are we? We're seated at the right hand of the Father, even as Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And this is what makes the church age so unbelievably powerful. This is why our stewardship is greater than anything in Israel, the Gentiles, or the angels in their stewardship before Adam. This is a marvelous and powerful priesthood whereby we are uh, not, uh, not omnipresent because we're, we're still monopresent in our physical location, but we are definitely bipresent or bioperational. While our bodies remain on earth, our attention is on the things above and our worship is in the things above. And all of our, uh, our treasures are laid up in the things above. And our purchases are made in the heavenly economy. We are heavenly focused in all that we do, even while we're ambassadors and strangers here on this fallen world. His present bodily absence from this world is to our advantage. And uh, so let's hold your finger here. Let's go back to John 14 and try to stress this in a, in a way as we did in the Life of Christ series way back. John 14. One of the most extraordinary sections of all the Gospels is right here in John 13 through 17. Almost your whole page will be glowing red. It's all red letter words of Christ. Um, from the time the, the Judas Iscariot walks out and the door was shut behind him. From, from 1331 on, it's just almost red letters everywhere. And as you scan down through the pages, if you find a black letter verse, what you find is a confused disciple. <laughs> okay, They're really easy to spot. You can just look for the black letters on this page and there's Simon Peter and his question and there's Thomas and his question and there's Philip and his question. Every, every time I, and there's Judas not a scary and his question. Just glance and find those black words on these pages and you've got a confused disciple just his head spinning. Because Jesus, on this night in which he's betrayed, Jesus is giving them some unfolding information they can't possibly digest but it's stuff they're going to need after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and the church age begins. And so without you know, unveiling the mystery too soon, he's equipping them for what they're going to need after his departure. It's a beautiful area. And in the process of this here in chapter 14, he is uh, discussing about the Holy Spirit who's coming, and they don't get that either, but uh, he says in verse 25, these things I've spoken to you while abiding with you during his earthly sojourn, during the time of his stay, while abiding with you, I've taught you this. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, by the way, Muslims say it's Muhammad, our Bible says it's the Holy Spirit. I'm going to go with that. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Israel has not had a stewardship with the universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit yet. They will in the millennium, but they've never had that yet. We do. We have that now. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. The chapter started with that back in 14.1. He repeats it here, and then what does he tell them? You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. That's the whole promise of I go to prepare a place for you and when I come again I will receive you to myself. It's a great rapture emphasis there in the first few verses of this chapter. But they didn't like it. He says, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced. And while we're at it, let's make comment. It's another second class, not true statement. It's a counterfactual. Jesus just told every one of these disciples, and Judas is gone, so he's telling the eleven believing disciples, plus I think Matthias was there too. He looks at all of them and he says, none of you love me. 
Because if you did love me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. If you would have loved me, if you did love me, you would have rejoiced. Since none of you rejoice, what's he saying? None of you love me. None of you love with the agape love as I love the Father with agape love. It's quite a rebuke. You would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. The present ministry of Jesus Christ as the apostle and high priest of our confession, it is a paterological ministry. It's oriented towards the Father. You and I are to be oriented to the Father. It's to our advantage that he has gone away. Chapter 16 and verse 7 spells it out as well. I think um, they got real quiet at that. They didn't have a lot to say. They knew he was right. And uh, so they just wouldn't say anything. After a while, they even stopped asking their questions. And um, so in 16.5, by the way, it's all one great big message. This is the upper room and walk to the garden discourse. And um, so it's the same context, same disciples in chapter 16. In verse 5, but now I'm going to him who sent me and none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. You're supposed to be rejoicing and instead you're sorrowful. Instead, you're not oriented to the plan of God. You're setting your mind on man's interest, not God's. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. And that's why I made the point in Hebrews 8.4 that Jesus' bodily absence from this world is to our advantage. Because if he was on earth, he would not be a priest at all. But that he is in heaven, he ever liveth to make intercession for the saints. Because he's in heaven, he's sitting at the Father's right hand. If any of you sins, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But if he was on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all. That's the point that's being made here in Hebrews chapter 8. So it's to our advantage that I go away. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And He, when He comes, will convict the world. Notice this, the whole world, globally, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And there's a power in this message, and there's a, a great thing to consider. Well, I just want to highlight something. Recognize what Jesus is doing now because he's free to do now, seated in the Father's right hand and indwelling every believer priest across this planet. A lot of times we talk about how in his first advent, how far did he travel? Most of us have traveled farther than Jesus ever traveled in his whole life. The, the, the scripture records uh, the Syrophoenician region as the furthest distant point that he ever got from his birthplace. Well, I guess Egypt as a baby. You don't remember that, right? <laughs> so, but how far did he really travel in his earthly life in his, in his first Advent ministry? And recognizing too that in the kenosis, the, hu- the humility of his first Advent where he had laid aside his privileges, he never, um, he never exercised omnipotence, he never exercised omnipresence, he didn't teleport all over the world, he didn't, sorry Mormons, he didn't show up in North America and talk to the, the natives there, alright? He was very localized in the first Advent ministry. But now it's to our advantage that he's gone away because now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for all the saints, indwelling you and I, the life that we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God, right? It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. What's the impact of Jesus' ministry now? It's everywhere. It's all over this world. It's in every believer that he has. Christ is all over this world right now as the body of Christ is is around the world. As I mentioned last hour, the body of Christ is in Cameroon right now under a lot of affliction. We need to be praying. So the present bodily absence from this world is to our advantage. I think it also keeps our attention focused properly so that we don't get so attached to this place that we lose sight of where we really belong. That this world is not our home. We're just passing through. That uh, we're here for a season and we're, we're longing to be with the Lord. Absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. We're, ne- we're never home while we're here. This world's not our home. We want to go home. And so uh, it's to our advantage. And this priesthood, 
What was left over after the cross? The post-Calvary, Calvary, I always pronounce Calvary, not soldiers on horses, okay? I get that messed up. And especially when General Joe was here, he was the commanding general of the 1st Cavalry Division. That made it even worse. The post-Calvary, after the cross, the post-Calvary Levitical priesthood continued for more than 30 years as an obsolete, unbelieving endeavor. The post-Calvary Levitical priesthood continued for more than 30 years as an obsolete, unbelieving endeavor. And here in Hebrews 8, 4 and 5, it's talking about it. It's talking about whenever Hebrews was written, we can debate whether it was the 50s or the 60s, or even if you want to be a liberal and say it was written in the 80s or 90s or whatever. But whenever it was written, it was written in the church age. It was written after Calvary. No one doubts that. I mean, so in the present tense, talking about these priests and their present service after the cross. The, um, all the legends and the stories, we can't prove it, but the tradition is, and the very old tradition relates to what the high priest had to do on Saturday morning, April 4th, 33 AD. Because Jesus died on the cross and the veil of the temple was rent in two. What do you think they did that next morning? Can you imagine? I mean, there were on-duty priests at the time. It was Passover. It's a high holy season. And their veil just got rent. Imagine the worst possible thing could happen in a church on Easter Sunday, right? Imagine the worst possible thing that could happen in the temple on Passover. And we just lost our veil. And it rent from two top to bottom. Wow. Okay. So the tradition, and uh, we can't prove it like I say, but that the high priest and his sons went in there in the early morning hours and they sewed it back up. That they had to sew that veil back up. I believe they had to have some kind of veil for the next 30 years. They, they, they kept that temple in operation through the, mid, the mid-60s. And imagine these murderers that just put Jesus to death who were so holy that they, they wanted Pilate to come out and talk to them because they weren't going to cross into the, into the praetorium and defile themselves. Uh, you know, wouldn't want to defile ourselves with praetorian germs before, Pentecost, before uh, Passover, right? Never mind that they're plotting murder and then they're okay with that. So here's these holy religious, uh, you know, self-righteous Pharisees and Sadducees in the high priest case. And uh, what, what's their Passover like? Well, they had to call home and say, I'm going to be late for Passover dinner, honey. I'm, uh, you know, they're text messaging the wife to say, uh, I'm not going to make Passover this year. We've got, we got to sew up this veil. Can you imagine? <laughs> the post-Calvary Levitical priesthood continued for more than 30 years as an obsolete, unbelieving endeavor. And we know it's obsolete. Uh, at the end of this chapter, I used to hate this verse. I think I've shared that before. Did I share this before? I, when I was a teenager, and even early when Ralph was training me and we were talking about priesthoods, and he would ask me about 8.13, and this, I really, 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 uh, okay, hates a sin. So I strongly disliked Hebrews 8.13. Because it says, whatever is obsolete, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And my question is, well, hello, wasn't this obsolete on Friday, April 3rd, when Jesus died on the cross? Certainly by Sunday when he rose from the dead. Can't we say that the law of Moses is obsolete, growing old, ready to disappear? Let's be done with it. Christ is the end of the law. That's uh, Romans 10.4. We're going to look at that next. Whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear, fixing to disappear, okay? Which I learned when I went to Alabama for boot camp. My first exposure to the South was this whole thing of fixing to. I never, what was that? We never fixing to anything in Seattle. That was, that was strange to me. You get there and everybody's going to be fixing to. Okay, I'll just do it already. And that's my attitude with respect to the Mosaic Law. 
It's obsolete, more than obsolete. It's growing old, it's more than growing old. It's dead. It's ready to disappear. Are you kidding? Why hasn't it disappeared already? Make it disappear now. Why are you going, why is there still a Levitical priesthood? And so it really, really bothered me until Ralph taught me some things and I learned and grew up and and then started to appreciate the fact this priesthood stays in operation even past the rapture, stays in operation in the tribulation, stays in operation with their new tribulational temple. Antichrist is going to come in and defile it. There's a priesthood that's going to be in operation when Jesus returns in his second advent. And it's curious to me why, okay, so it's obsolete and growing old, it's ready, it's fixing to disappear, but it's waiting for the second advent of Jesus Christ is what it's waiting for. And even then will come the reformation of the millennium because a whole new temple gets built with the Zadokite priesthood, uh, Levitical priesthood offerings. So there's more more to study and more to grow with respect to that. It's an obsolete, unbelieving endeavor. And, and really, what really helped me was Romans 10. Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the end of the law, right? So His once and for all sacrifice means all those other ones are over and done with. Get rid of them. Because Christ is the end of the law. How simple can that be? Well, read the rest of the verse, dummy. That was me talking to myself. The... Um, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Oh, wait a minute. That makes a difference then, doesn't it? Because the Jews are not in belief. They're still in unbelief. And in their unbelief, having rejected the Christ, in unbelief, Christ is not the end of the law. Not even close. So in unbelief, they're still under law. Which is why after the rapture, when Israel has her stewardship restored, Israel will once again have a priesthood functioning, operational. They're going to have some kind of temple in place because that's where Antichrist goes in and defiles it. And so, but they're there in unbelief until 144,000 actually get saved. And then, then there's more conflict. And then those saved ones are going to become victims of persecution and martyrdom. Because the priesthood crowd in unbelief, they don't want those guys around preaching the name of Christ. And so that's what we deal with when we get into some of the tribulational studies. They, the, the, the traitors are among themselves for those Jewish evangelists. So uh, Moses writes that, uh, or verse, again, verse 4, I guess the whole section here from 1 through 4, talking about Israel and their unbelief. Paul was very patriotic. I, I think it's common. You know, we want to be pro-American patriotic, but we don't want to confuse our patriotism with a Christian way of life. Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Some of the most religious people you'll ever meet, boy, they got a zeal. But they're ignorant (laughs) about what they're doing. Not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And that's the same issue we deal with today as believers confuse legalism with sanctification, as they confuse works with grace and faith and all these things. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So as an unbelieving endeavor, as an obsolete unbelieving endeavor, the um, priesthood continued. The Levitical priesthood continued after the death of Christ. And He ascended to the Father's right hand and that Levitical priesthood kept continuing. And it's curious, if he was on earth, he would not be a priest at all. You know, had he come back a, a month later or a couple months later and whatever, Israel was not prepared for him. They're still not prepared for him. The Jewish people will not be prepared for the Christ until they go through the tribulation. That's what it's going to take. It will require the absolute hell on earth of tribulation to prepare the remnant of Israel for his return. And until they say, until they quote Psalm 115, blessed is, is he who comes in the name of the Lord, until they're humble to accept Jesus as their Messiah, he can't come back. It's waiting for their tribulation to humble them to welcome back the king that they rejected. So if he was on earth now, the author of Hebrews says, he wouldn't be a priest at all. They would just hate him and try to kill him all over again. Like Lazarus. They killed him once and then they wanted to try to kill him again. Like, this guy. (laughs) 
People are paying attention to this guy that's not dead anymore. And if they hated it with Lazarus, what do you think they would do if Christ came back and started walking around? And so uh, if he was on earth, he would not be a priest at all. But now, but now, back to my text here of Hebrews 8, he's not on earth. What a genius plan of God. To, to resurrect Christ, to bring him to heaven, to seat him in his right hand, to which of the angels did he ever say, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is the genius of God the Father who exalts the Son and then says, I've got some work to do to prepare for your second advent. And that's what the Father's presently doing. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so the Son is there in session. Now it's not eternal. It's just until, and then when the until is fulfilled, the Father will then say, now go and rule in the midst of your enemies. And that's when Jesus will descend for second advent and begin to rule the millennial kingdom in the midst of his enemies. And so while he's sitting there, again, is the session just a waste of time? I really, I want to do more studies on the session. I want to do more ministry uh, studies on what does it mean to be there at the Father's right hand in fellowship with the Father and interceding for the saints. Because to, to me, when the Father puts delays into things, it's beautiful. And the fact that we got saved and didn't immediately receive our resurrection bodies and get snapped up to heaven, the fact that we got saved and then He left us here means He can, he can work through us and the humility of our flesh and the humility of, our, of uh, these earthen vessels so that the grace is of God and not of ourselves. And then eventually, you know, we get there. Same thing with our Savior. He's ascended, he's sitting at the Father's right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And in the meantime, the the power of having a global priesthood with a high priest at the Father's right hand and you and I all over this place, within the veil, serving, praying, ministering. It's an amazing thing to think about. All right. And it's more excellent. Verse 6 says, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. More excellent than he had in his first advent. More excellent than any high priest has ever had. A more excellent ministry. We share in this. We have a more excellent approach by which we draw near to God. He has obtained a more excellent ministry and shares it with us. This is our blessing to have a Savior in heaven at the Father's right hand. Almost in the confusion that arises when Jesus tells his disciples, he says, greater works than these you will do. And we we step back and say, no way, what are you talking about? I'm going to do greater works than Jesus? That sounds blasphemous, that sounds wrong. How can I do any greater works than Jesus? Okay? Well, not confusing, of course, atonement and what he does on the cross, but even, even with atonement and what he does on the cross, we function because of that. We function because of that. And to not call that greater, when Jesus says it's greater, greater works than these will he do because I go to the Father, because I send the Holy Spirit. You and I live in the stewardship of the greater things. And that's what's talking about here, the more excellent ministry. By much as he is also, even beyond that, the mediator of a better covenant. So there's really two things being said here in verse 6. That he presently has a more excellent ministry and that he is also the mediator of a better covenant. Now if you blend those into one, I think you have problems. And I think you ignore the also but he has a more excellent ministry. That's a truth. And then also, he is the mediator of a better covenant. That's a separate issue. But they're both connected based upon what he did in his victory on the cross. Can we be clear on that? All right. So the present ministry he has now, the covenant though is waiting. He can't make that covenant with Israel until Israel is in belief, until Israel is in faith because he's going to write his law upon their heart. He's going to forgive their sins. He's going to bring them into the land. He's going to fill them with the Holy Spirit. He's going to set them apart above all the Gentile nations. 
there's a tremendous amount that He will do in Israel in the Millennial Kingdom that's not happening today. The New Covenant is not in effect today. He's the mediator of it, but that mediation hasn't started yet. Just as we're the servants of it, but that service hasn't started yet. It's getting ready to happen when Christ returns. All right. So he's obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Better promises. So we'll deal with this too. All right, let's just talk a couple of things real quickly and then we'll wrap this up. Jesus' present session at the right hand of God the Father is a more excellent ministry as it exhibits substance rather than shadows. And we've discussed this. I want to hit it from a slightly different angle here in 1 John 2, 1. Remember the Old Testament ministry was just a reminder of sin again and again and again. Evening sacrifices, morning sacrifices, they were sin reminders. Day of Atonement, annual sacrifice was a sin reminder. This high priest does not need to keep bringing the sin reminders. This high priest dealt with sin once and for all at the cross. And the Father doesn't want to be reminded of that ever again. He chooses not to remember it ever again. But he does have a session in the right hand of the Father, not as a sin reminder, as a grace reminder, as a forgiveness reminder. Because if we do sin, what do we have? We have an advocate. 1 John 2, 1. the best lawyer in the world, because he's not in the world. <laughs> he's seated at the right hand of the Father. I've got a Jewish lawyer I want to tell you about. We all do. Seated at the right hand of God the Father. And so we have fellowship with the Father and with His Son. The blood of Christ keeps on cleansing us from all sin. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All of the beautiful doctrine of 1 John chapter 1 leads to the conclusion in 2 1, 1 John 2 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The point of having fellowship with the Father and the Son is to walk in the light as He is in the light, so that we don't sin, so that the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, keeps on cleansing us from all sin. But if anyone does sin, because we're, we're still human and we still have sin natures, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And this part of Kletos ministry that Jesus had, this is what you want to focus in on as we talk about there's the gift of pastor-teacher, the gift of evangelist, the gift of parakletos, probably the least developed of all the major gifts. And it's a communication gift. It belongs in the leadership function of a local church. The parakletos gift. And uh, this is a key verse that we deal with as we train believers under this giftedness. Because really the shepherding side of the pastor, of the pastor-teacher, is really identified with Christ, the good shepherd. The parakletos components of your encourager gifts are tied in with God the Holy Spirit, tied in with His role as the paraclete. And then, of course, this passage here also, intercessory prayer of Jesus Christ as our paraclete. Most of the work you do as a paraclete is in prayer interceding for the people that you come alongside. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. That term propitiation is the term for mercy seat, what we deal with in the mercy seat of the tabernacle. Not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So what a blessing to have this substance, to not have animal ritual that says we're sinners and there's a future provision for sin. We have a seated, victorious Savior saying, been there, done that, took care of that, paid for, removed. Every time we commit a sin, paid for, removed. When the adversary wants to accuse us, paid for, removed. That's our advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And this is uh, our blessing Beyond that comes the new covenant. And next week we'll come back and we'll look at this. In addition to Jesus' present ministry is the additional role Jesus has as the mediator of the new covenant. And this ties in with our role as the servants of the new covenant. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
And we want to be clear that there's present ministry and there's future ministry. For Jesus, the present ministry is the apostle and high priest of our confession. His future ministry is the mediator of the new covenant that he will mediate when he returns in second advent and, and uh, enacts that covenant for the nation of Israel. And so uh, we'll deal with these verses from chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 12. But that's going to have to wait until next week. Let's close with prayer. <coughs> Father, I do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that we have to study Father, you take us into such deep things, especially here in the Hebrews series. I pray that you would open our eyes to these beautiful realities, the glories of our Savior seated at your right hand and ourselves seated at your right hand in Christ. I pray, Father, that we would recognize and and fully implement our uh, responsibilities as believer priests, that, Father, we would identify what our prayer life is supposed to reflect, what our intercessory prayer life is supposed to reflect, that our prayers are more than just asking for stuff and telling you what we need and complaining about other issues. But we actually, through prayer, Father, we serve you. We liturgically serve you, Father, in our prayers. And if some of us uh, have a background with liturgical churches, then help others, Father, to, to try to start thinking in these capacities. Not because we want to, we, we certainly don't want to begin any earthly uh, goofiness, But we want to understand what the realities are, Father, so that we can be serious about our liturgical ministry to you. That as we serve one another, we are liturgically serving you. And open our eyes to these blessings, Father, that we can accomplish it in in full uh, volitional fashion, Father, as fellow workers in this Melchizedek priesthood. So we thank you, Father, for teaching us. Help make these things real. Make them real in our life. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.